Revelation chapter 2 tonight brings us to the church at Pergamos. Pergamos, and we're in the church is revealed, is the uh, series we're in. We're going to begin in verse 12 of Revelation 2. Follow along, please, as I read this passage regarding the church in Pergamos. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Let's pray together, please. Father, help me to give clearly Your Word tonight as I speak. And uh, Lord, I pray Your people will have a desire to listen. May they give the reverence to Your Word that it is deservant of. May we pay attention on purpose. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Having addressed the churches in the two port cities of the Aegean Sea, Ephesus, the first week, and then Smyrna, those two, and Smyrna is about 40 miles north of Ephesus. Uh, then after those two uh, churches were addressed, John, by the Spirit of God, began to speak to the other five churches of the seven churches in Asia. And what you have, you have Ephesus, and that's port city. You have the Aegean Sea, you have, you have Ephesus. Then you have, figure the other way because I'm facing you. And, and then you have up above it, uh, you, you have Smyrna, also a port city. Then you come inland somewhat, just a little bit for Pergamus, but Pergamus is north, north and a little bit east. From this point, all the churches as name will go down in order to the south and further to the east. So you'll, you'll have Pergamus, and then Thyatira, and then Sardis, and then Philadelphia, and then Laodicea, which is the most southern of the seven, seven uh, churches. Uh, Pergamus is the most northern of the churches, and uh, Laodicea is the most southern, being just above Colossae, where the church of Colossians was with it. Uh, Pergamus is now known as Bergamot. That's the name of, name of the town that's there now. It was an influential and well-populated city situated on a mesa. And a mesa is an elevated piece of gra- uh, ground with a flat top to it, or relatively flat top. And Pergamus was up on top of a mesa that was approximately, it's approximately a mile and a half wide by three and a half miles long. And uh, they, on top of that, you had the city. The name of Pergamus means fortified. 
And of course, as a city, it would have been a lot easier to defend because it was up on high ground. Anyway, you would approach it. You would have to come up to come up to the city and militarily, especially in the days. Uh, I mean, even now that's an advantage, but in the days of the warfare and such as they would have back then, it was a distinct, distinct advantage uh, with it. You could, you could uh, guard a place with a lot less people if you had that situation going on with it. Um, it started, the city was there by the mid 5th century BC. The Persians were in charge of it. And you come forward to the Bible times when you had the church at Pergamos. Um, it was under Roman influence and underneath the Roman Empire, part of the Roman Empire. And what had happened was it had, it had achieved, the people of Pergamos had achieved uh, political favor with Rome. That translated into money. That translated into influence. That translated into trade coming through there. And the way that they, uh, way that they largely secured the political favor with Rome was there was a temple there in Pergamos, and there there were three Roman emperors that were worshipped at that temple. They worshipped their their image. They worshipped these these people who either were living or had lived. And um, those three emperors were Augustus. I almost called him August. <laughs> Augustus. Trajan and then Hadrian and they had one temple where those three emperors were all worshipped and it brought a lot of it brought favor it courted favor with the Roman officials and such with it the city contained a library and libraries were you know you say well, every town has a library now back then you didn't <laughs> that was uh, that was quite a thing to have and the library at Pergamos was second only in size to the library in Alexandria Egypt which was renowned for how huge and, and, and what all was in it it was destroyed later in warfare, and uh, but the uh, but it was second only to the Alexandrian Library. They had a stadium, um, they had a forum, they had a theater. This is interesting. They had a theater that could seat ten thousand people for whatever production things they were putting on. I got tickled every now and then. Uh, sometimes people who are a little bit out of the way towards churches getting very large. Um, they say, well, you know, the early churches, they only met in houses and they could have only had so many people. No, that's where they started. But the ancient world had some large buildings. <laughs> had large areas to meet. It's not a problem to put several thousand people together. It happened on a regular basis. And so they, uh, uh, they had a theater there, Pergamos, 10,000 people fit in. This one's wild. I actually saw a picture of some of the ruins of it. They had an amphitheater, which is in an outdoor setting, 50,000 seats in it. You got to see it. it's just along the hills there. It's incredible. It's on the sides of that uh, mesa. And 50,000 seats for whatever they're going to watch. So in other words, this was a busy, big city with a lot going on. What had happened was God, as He has done so graciously in so many places, had visited that place with the Gospel. And people had believed on the Lord, had accepted Him as their Savior, had followed Him in baptism just like people do here at this church. And they had become part of the church and there was a church there, Pergamos. Church is actually in that region. And what happened was Jesus Christ uh, told John, He said, write this, this church at Pergamos and, and, and we'll deal with the things that are there. So following the pattern of truth we've learned so far, we're going to look for how Jesus described Himself to the church at Pergamos. By way of review, you remember to the Ephesian church, which was strong in works, strong in separation, but they left their first love. Jesus described Himself as He that holdeth the seven stars in His right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Then last week, 
to Smyrna, that persecuted church in the midst of tribulation, there was no rebuke given to that church, no censure given to that church, but he described himself to that church, that embattled church in Smyrna, he described himself as the first and the last which was dead and is alive and emphasized his resurrection power with it. Now this week, we look at Pergamos, we're going to find out how he describes himself. Look at the passage there. Look in verse 12. And, the angel, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the... What kind of sword? Sharp sword. And what, what's unique about the sword? It has what? Two edges. Two-edged sword. These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. After addressing their struggle... And here's their struggle. Where Satan's, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. They were at points with Jesus, they were at odds with Jesus in a couple of places. It says, Thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And then he said, Thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So before he revealed the fact that they were right there, in fact, it says where Satan's seed is, then it says where Satan dwelleth. That's a great resume for a town, isn't it? Then he said, you've got some doctrinal problems going on. And then he comes down to the end of that thing and he reinforces the description. He described himself as uh, the one, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And then he comes down and he says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus' description, as always, is vital to understand what the church was and what was going on. And vital for us to understand if we start having troubles like they were having troubles of the type. Look at Isaiah 49. Don't lose your place in Revelation, but look at Isaiah 49. Deal with this thing about him talking about the sword of his mouth. Isaiah 49. You know, teachers in our meeting, what most of you said was about the most frustrating. We got a little of that happening here tonight, all right? So y'all help me out if you can. (laughs) Ryan, you're contributing. You ain't helping, brother. Come on, man. Just think back just a little while ago. Right? Get in gear here. As, 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 as you help now, so the Lord may help you on Sunday. Amen? <laughs> Let's get with this thing a little bit. Isaiah 49. Look in verse 1. It says, Listen, O you isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. One of the descriptions here of God's plan for use and God's plan to, to, to work through a person and a people He said, He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. Not to damage and destroy. Not to use the word sarcasm. You know what the word means? 
To sarcasm means to cut the flesh. That's what that root word of that means. And that's what it does. A sarcastic remark. Cuts. Like that. But when he said he's made my mouth a sharp sword, he made the sharp sword to penetrate and pierce and cut out what's not needed and do, do what's needed among the people. And so there you have the earliest time in the Bible that what's coming out of a mouth is represented as a sword. Well then, look over at Hebrews 4, probably the best known passage dealing with this. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12 says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. On Sunday as I was preaching, I mentioned the fact that when we study the Bible, it will show us things about ourselves that sometimes we don't even want to face about ourselves. It will reveal our motive to us. It will show us that we don't maybe see things about ourselves that God wants us to see. And as you start getting into the Bible, it will show you things. Why? Because of that passage right there. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Sometimes people say, well, I know my own heart to a degree. But we all have blind spots. And uh, the fact is that much about ourselves we, we don't know. I think everybody who's got very many years on them in here, one time or another, you've encountered something in life where your reaction, you, you would say, that surprised me about me. I didn't, that, that surprised me. That came out of me. I didn't know that was there. Many of you are nodding right now. That's agreement, isn't it? We've seen it. We've said it. We've, we've felt it. And uh, the Word of God shows us these things. It teaches us things about what we need. God will get us to the point of where our real need is. He's real good at cutting through the fluff. Have you ever dealt with people who have quite a bit of wisdom to them? It's been my blessed lot in life to be around a lot of different people who have had quite a bit of wisdom. And I've sought after people who have wisdom in different areas. And there's an earmark, there's a, there's a, there's a characteristic that's very common, and that's they know how to get right to the meat of the matter. They get through all the stuff, get right to the meat of the matter. And uh, God certainly does that better than any person will ever meet with it. But he said to Pergamos, now Jesus was describing himself. He said, I'm the one with this, the, the, he said, I have this sword coming out of my mouth. So he's saying to this church, what you need is my word cutting into and discerning you. Watch, watch what else happens. Not only in Hebrews chapter 4, but look in Revelation 1, getting up closer to where we are right now. Look how Jesus had described himself. The way John saw him right away. Revelation 1, look in verse 16. When he saw the glorified Christ, it said he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword. His countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Well, we just read in Hebrews 4 that the word of God is quick and powerful. Well, guess what comes out of your mouth? That's where, it is. That's where your words come from. And so he said, My words. Uh, they, they literally act as a sword for what God sends them forth to do. Look in Revelation chapter 19. Go back towards the end of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. 
Look, if you will, down in there in verse uh, Revelation 19, verse 15. Well, let's start a little earlier. Let's start in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, which is a, a, a type of clothing, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. There's a whole lot of different overlaps in all that, that uh, explanation and, and the identification. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. An odd thing to be going to battle in white clothing. That's unusual. But wait, let's see what happens with it. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth out, uh, he treadeth, excuse me, the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So what he's accomplishing, he's accomplishing with his mouth. Look on down verse 21. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And so in this final battle, the destruction is done by the Word. And uh, God just takes care of it. You know, uh, when you read one of the Gospel accounts, you find out that when the crowd of people came to Christ in Gethsemane, and they were coming to take him. And he made the confession, where he cannot deny himself, the Bible says. When he, they said they were wanting Jesus was called Christ, he said, I am he. It says they fell away backward. What happened was, his glory just broke forth a little on them. They just fell away backward. I was in a doofy class in the liberal Bible college. I still remember the teacher. And he got up and tried his best to explain that away. He said what happened was, he said when Jesus stepped forward, the first fellow in line stepped back a little and tripped and hit the one by him and knocked him down. And that's what he was literally trying to teach. I'm sitting there going, can they pay you to act like this? Why, why are you teaching in a Bible college? You don't believe the Bible. Why don't you go do something honest? Man, if I didn't believe the Bible, I wouldn't teach in a Bible college. And that's crazy. But uh, I'll tell you what happened was, Christ said, I am He. And just His words saying who He was was enough to push that back. And uh, there come a day when the final battle is not going to be determined by stealth aircraft and smart bombs and technology of various types, but it's going to literally come down to just God saying, you're done. And uh, man, it's, it's going to be something to see with that. And so what happens is he describes himself. Jesus said, look, Pergamos, I have a sword coming out of my mouth. I want you to understand you're going to be judged by the Word of God. And it's a serious business because you have some serious problems. Not only did they live, shall we call it a dangerous neighborhood where Satan's seed is? In other words, you understand by seed, it means the, uh, that's his official ruling area. We would say Columbus, Ohio is the seat of government for the state of Ohio. 
Why? Because the state capital is here in Columbus. It's the seat of the government. That's exactly that word. That's exactly the same word. No difference, no change in it. And it says this is where Satan's seat is. It doesn't mean that's his chase lounge where he takes vacations. That means he who has power and principalities and he oversees other powers in the spiritual realm that every day affect man's governments, man's behavior pattern. You wonder why you see stuff sometimes you go, has everybody lost their mind? There's more to it than politicians. And there's more to it than what you see on the surface. You think it's all about natural causes. It's not. I can't believe sometimes God's people are so so short-sighted they can't see beyond just the physical that's happening. Powers and principalities. It's very real. Very real. We would just believe our Bibles, we would believe it. If you had had occasion to slam into it sometimes in your life, you'd believe in it. It's real. And what was going on, Satan, for whatever reason, had decided Pergamos was where he was setting up his headquarters at that point in time. Now, this is amazing. In the midst of that, in that place, God had a church. God had a church. I got pretty convicted the other night. I got to tell you the truth, Brother Rob. I really did. I'll just go ahead and call it out like it is. Um, I was driving down to Crooksville. Any of y'all ever been to Crooksville? I think Washington, D.C. should be changed to Crooksville. Wouldn't that be a perfect name for that? How many of you have never been in the sunny environments of Crooksville, Ohio? You've never been to Crooksville? All right. What? Take her there on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Now, about 10 of you, 11 of you, raise your hand, you've been there. About six of you, raise your hand, you haven't been there. The rest of y'all don't know where you've been or haven't been? <laughs> or are you just not going to respond to anything tonight? You're just like, I'm not here. Huh? You blinked. He went through. Oh, you were on the main highway that goes past it. I went down. I went down the uh, back way, and uh, down there. But I went down to make a, a visit there in Crooksville, and I'm telling you, uh, there's a region down south of us anyway that gets this way. But you talk about a spiritually oppressive area. Now it was sunshine when I went down. It was dark, but it was getting darker and darker the closer I got. I'm going to use a technical spiritual term. It was getting me the heebie-jeebies. Right? I try not to use those fancy like terms. But honestly, I thought when I got done, and it wasn't because of the person I was talking to and such, but when I got done and I started driving, I, I literally I felt like I can't get out of here fast enough. And, and I, this is where this is where I got our conviction. I thought, well, now aren't you a great preacher of the gospel? You encounter an area which obviously, and I don't know all why it is, but it's a dark area. Dark, bad. And your, 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 your response is not they need a church that's let me out. You know? I hope you all do seriously pray for me. I need, I need help in some of these areas. But it is oppressive. How many of you have been to Crooksville and you would like to move there tomorrow? Are there takers for Crooksville? You want to live in Crooksville? 
sell insurance down here. And the insurance salesman in Crooksville. That's shady. <laughs> That's shady any way you look at it. You ever been in one of those places you just get there and you think, let me out of here. You don't know why exactly? Let me out of here as fast as I can get out of here. And uh, it's, it's just got that horribly oppressive feeling to it. Now, so you say, I was thinking about buying a house down there. All right, <laughs> good, you can be our missionary. Um, I wonder how pertinent was it like at times. <coughs> Do you know Satan is not omnipresent? Omnipresent means being able to be everywhere at once. When the Bible says he walketh to and fro, he literally he moves about. Most of the time, people say, you know, the devil did this or did that to him. He's, he may not even be on the same continent where they are, literally. And the devil doesn't even have to show up at our door. Usually, we just self-destruct, honestly. Most of the time, we don't even have to have devils or demons on us. It's just self-destruct is what the flesh is going to take us out. But can you imagine being where Satan's seat is? I think that's amazing. Well, look back at the passage and let me show you a couple of things and we'll go to the house. Some of you are there already, so I'll just... <laughs> In acknowledgement of that, we'll move along. <laughs> uh, let's look at verse 13 again. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. I think it's interesting. God said, I know what you do. And that's not a chiding type comment. It's, I know. I see it. And he said, where where Satan's seed is, he said, I know what you're up against. I know what you're up against. And thou holdest fast my name. He said, and I know you've not denied me. In a town where it would not have been popular, you claim my name. So they were doing some things right. He said, in a town where it wouldn't have been easy, you're claiming my name. And then he talks about Antipas. Someone who'd actually given their life to stand for the cause of Christ. I listened to some detail today of a brother that was just murdered in Baghdad right when our conference was starting. Just right before. And uh, he had been on staff at Temple Baptist there in Knoxville. He worked directly for Brother Sexton, did a lot of things there. Did a lot of things at the college. Those gunmen purposely because of the influence he's having with the gospel. So those gunmen who didn't want the gospel going on, that was what that was all about. Blocked him in, two Chevy Suburbans, one blocked in front of the vehicle, one in the back. Came around, shot him in the chest with the rifles. He died in his wife's arms. He died not because he was a criminal. He didn't die because he was caught someone who was trying to steal something. He was directly slain. No question asked about it. He was directly slain because of preaching the gospel. They had a fellow here by the name of Antipas who also 
had been killed because of the gospel's sake. He didn't go out looking for it. He wasn't trying to stir people up. He say, which one? Or brother that just got killed or, or Antipas? I don't believe either. I know the one that just got killed didn't. In fact, as Brother Sexton related some details about it, he said that the greatest response they were getting of people testifying to his character and what he had meant were from Iraqi people who had been influenced to the ministry there. He didn't go trying to die. He wasn't going there trying to be murdered, but he just kept standing for what's right. It cost him his life. And they had a martyr. I want you to notice the language that's used with this though. Look in verse 13. Look at the language that's used there. I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast, look how personal it is, my name. Jesus said, you hold my name. You don't, you don't give up on that. He said, you've been good about that. And has not denied my faith. And uh, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr. The word martyr is the word witness. Martyrios. If you looked up the word witness in your Bible, if you just did a word, you know, like a dictionary search, but you're doing it through a root word, you would find every single time that the word witness shows up, you're going to find some form of the word martyrios. Martyrios. A martyr. A martyr is a witness. Now, we think of as a martyr as someone who fully gives their life, and there's a reason why we should, because Stephen is called a martyr, first martyr in the New Testament. Antipas is called a martyr. Both those men were killed for what they believed, not because they were mishandling themselves, not because they were doing something that was out of the way, but they simply would not reject or refuse or deny Jesus Christ. When pushed to a point where they had to either repudiate and go back on what they say they believe and who they're following, or it was going to cost them their life. They said they could not deny the war. Now that's the ultimate witness because the witness is sealed by the blood. And someone believes and, and is willing to stand and say, you may take my life, but I cannot deny my Lord. I don't think anyone would have a question wondering whether they actually believed in the Lord. And so what is it? There, there was so much going on with it. Um, as, 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 people, as people with a biblically founded faith, which is what we desire to be, as people with a biblically founded faith, we believe in a very real and literal devil. The Scripture clearly and emphatically identifies him as that old serpent, Satan, the devil, the dragon and Lucifer. There's no question about that, that identification. In fact, in two passages in Revelation, all of those titles except for Lucifer are put in together in, in a single verse in two different occasions and says the devil, that old serpent, which is, and it says, so you don't miss that this is all the same person. We do not believe, as people with a biblically founded faith, we do not believe that he's just, it's another name for a corruptive influence. We do not believe that it's just another name for evil with a D put on it. As people with a biblically founded faith, we believe that he is a real created being with unbelievable majesty, beauty, power, and cunning. 
We also believe biblically that no man or woman upon the earth is the equal or can stand up to him one-on-one. Also, as people who have a biblically founded faith, we believe greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And through the power of Lord Jesus Christ as He indwells us in the person of the Holy Spirit, we have power to resist Satan and to stand against his wiles. That's what people who have a biblically founded faith believe. And so what happens is, Pergamos was the headquarters of basically the center of operation for Satan's worldwide principles, principalities and powers there. Then they had a doctrinal problem. Look at it quickly there. And I want you to notice a single word in here. Look in verse 14. But I have a few things against thee. And, and, and notice that God calls them to be accountable to being faithful and have a fidelity to the Word of God regardless of where they live. Regardless of what has happened. God never looks at them and says, oh, you poor things. You're in a tough town. One of your members has been a martyr. It's okay if you, if you don't do things right. The Lord does not operate that way. Amen. Verse 14, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that... Look at that next word. Hold. That's an interesting word. Hold. They've got, they've got something. They're not willing to give it up. They've got something and this is their point. They've got something and this is how they identify themselves. What do they hold? It says... They have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam. So what's that about? I'll give you what I know about it in just a minute. Who taught Balak, which was a heathen king, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Then verse 15, So hast thou also them, look at the phrase again, that hold... The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. God said, I hate that doctrine. <laughs> That's tough, isn't it? So what did Pergamus have a problem with? They had some doctrinal problems. No wonder the Lord Jesus described Himself as, as the one that had the sharp sword coming out of His mouth. Because they needed some of the Word of God to get some things straightened out. They had people who were in this church who were holding the doctrines were contrary to what God would have done. They're going to hang on to their doctrine. The other things I say every now and then, I don't know if you notice, I'm not senile yet. So many times when I'm repeating something, I'm not, I'm not doing it unaware. Every now and then I do. And it's not just because I'm running out of material, okay? But every now and then I'll say, and you'll hear me say it. You'll probably hear me say it. I doubt it's as a month goes by without me saying it in some public service. This is not a Calvinist church. We're not Calvinists here. Not going to be. It's predestined. I have a little fun. <laughs> you say, why do you do that? Because that, that, old, that old corrupt doctrine is causing nightmares in churches. So see, the way you do that is you just shut the door right out of its nose and it starts coming through the door. So well, that keeps somebody from coming in. They're welcome to come in if they leave Calvin out in the parking lot. I like Baptist brothers and sisters, but I want them to get rid of that hard shell before they come here. We're not Calvinists. 
I'll mention different things at different times. Why? Because it's really important, and I'll support it with Scripture, and I'll mention things about it. Why? Because you don't want people to get a hold of a false doctrine and just hang out to that thing. The only way that you get that rid of that is with the Word of God. See, I don't want a church, and I don't want to be pastor in a church, and I don't want to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give account a pastor in a church where somebody could come in and never know that a doctrine like Calvinism or a doctrine like, like the Charismatics uh, teach speaking in tongues or any of these type of doctrines or a doctrine believing that a saved person can actually be lost again. I don't want someone coming in and sitting here and not ever hearing that that's wrong. I don't give account to the Lord for not being clear. And I don't want to give account to the Lord for not giving forth a certain sound. Agree or disagree, that's someone's prerogative to do. And by the way, <laughs> doesn't mean I have to be unkind. In fact, I believe if I'm doing the way the Lord does, I won't be unkind, but I'll be firm. It means it's not okay for nonsense to come in. It's not okay for people to be led into, into error. That's what this Bible's talking about in this situation. And seeing with Balaam, look what he did. Look what the Bible describes about it. It talks about the doctrine of Balaam. If you don't know about Balaam, Balaam was a prophet and he was called on by this king Balak to curse God's people, to put a curse on the children of Israel. Balak was absolutely terrified when he saw Israel coming because there were so many of them. In fact, he said they're going to lick us up. This is funny. Numbers 22, you can read about it. He said, he said they're going to lick us up as an ox licketh up grass. He said there are so many of them, they're going to wipe us out. And he, he sent for Balaam and he said, Balaam, I want you to come and stand up on a mountain and pronounce a curse against them and stop these people. And Balaam told the messengers, at first he said, I can't go, and then he went with them. Balaam ended up being quite, quite, quite a mess of a fellow. But he, uh, when he got there, and it's kind of odd how the thing happened, but he said, I can only speak what the Lord tells me to speak. So he goes up on one mountain, they make seven altars, do sacrifice, and they have him. And then Balaam says, all right, put a curse on him. And he steps up and puts a blessing on him. Recognizes his blessing on him. And Balak literally is like, what are you doing? I brought you here. I hired you. I paid you to put a curse on them. You blessed them. Balak, the heathen king, goes, let's try a different mountain. Literally, they go to a different place where he can see more of Israel out there in the plain. They do the seven altar thing again, and Balaam steps up, puts a stronger blessing on him. Balak literally is like, what are you doing? And Balaam said, I can only say what God says. And God said, bless them. He took him to a third mountain, did the same thing again, and this time he really goes into detail about what God's going to do with Israel. Balak about loses his mind. But Balaam taught somewhere in there, and you find all the detail about it, you let me know because I've studied on it, and there's not some of the details not given. According to Revelation, we know Balaam, it's, it's a bad situation. I'm going to give you another passage on it. But it says there in Revelation verse 14, he says he taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Somewhere in there, uh, Balaam was a part of Balak learning how to cause trouble for the people of God in two specific areas. One was to eat things sacrificed idols, so they're, they're involving there's the falseness of that worship, and then to commit fornication. Moral uh, perversity and moral depravity came in. 
And it, there were people who held that doctrine. It was okay. I've been amazed to watch things. I've been amazed to watch how you'll get somebody who's uh, just living fleshly or whatever. And, and, and they're smart, so they, they know a few things. And they'll convince all kinds of people around them that it's okay to sin. God doesn't really care about fornication. I mean, especially if you're going to marry somebody anyway, what's the difference? It's just a, it's just a ceremony. It's just a piece of paper. That's devil talk, literally. It's straight out of hell. There could be nothing more perverse to the gospel of Christ and the teaching of the Bible than that kind of mindset. Not just a piece of paper. Not just a ceremony. It's an acknowledgement the type of ceremony has changed down over the years. Although it's not horribly different than it was. But there's always been a point in time where they say, look, this is the husband, this is the wife, this is the man, this is the woman. Stupid things you have to explain now then. And they now are husband and wife, and because of this commitment before God and before people, however they did it, now it is okay to be as husband and wife. I've had people say, hey, will you recognize us as a common law marriage? I may hit some thin ice here, but that's all right. I do know how to swim. You will recognize our common law marriage. And my answer was no. But why would you do that? Because here's why they were doing it. It wasn't a conviction they had from the Bible about the uh, government not being allowed to license or sanction marriage because it's a God-given thing. That'd be a different that'd be a different basis. Whether or not I would agree that's a standard to take, that would be a legit, legitimate question for some people. You know what it's always been? It's not something I've only seen once either. I've not seen it dozens, but I've seen it. You know what that question's been asked to me, what it's always been? Because if they actually get married, they lose their government money. Excuse me? You're willing to shack up together and give you a hundred extra bucks? I can tell you what your profession is. It's it is wrong. Then another one will come along and say, well, you know, boozing's not bad just as long as you don't get drunk. They don't know what they're talking about either. And you know, people who are affected by stuff never come to the pastor and ask him, well, we know what you'll say. That's exactly right because you know they'll teach you the Word of God. Instead, they want to go to people in their own age group and their own, their own little clique who are trying to tell them it's okay to live worldly and fleshly and ungodly. It's not okay. And God's going to call it into question. You can ignore a preacher. You can ignore a Bible preacher if you want to. But you and I both, we are not going to ignore the Lord Jesus Christ when we stand before Him. I'm not going to be able to ignore Him. I'm not going to be able to act like anything that I've done wrong in my life is okay. I'm not going to be able to act like any attitude I've had that's wrong is okay. Or any neglect. It is a real serious business. What happened was Pergamos had people who held to the doctrine of Balaam, which led them to eating the stuff offered to idols. It led them to fornication, and they were accepting that within the church. Well, that's that's just the way, you know. Uh, this is okay. We're going to recognize it. Yeah. We'll have a we'll have a marriage retreat, and we know these two are just 
shacking up together and stuff, but we'll just act like they're married. They're not. And if in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ there's not a distinction made, where's it going to be made? That's what Balaam did. And people were holding to that doctrine. They were holding to that thing. Then you come along, and by the way, you read Numbers 22. <laughs> I don't know, I have a little bit of a warped sense of humor. If you can read what happens between Balaam and his donkey, and not just, I mean, if you really read that and listen to what's happening, that donkey three times tries to get away because he sees the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. Balaam doesn't see it. Here the prophet, in fact, it says the, 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 the ass forbade the madness of the prophets and he wouldn't let the prophet get in trouble. The donkey heads out through a field the first time. Everybody heads out through a field. Balaam starts beating. Now, you know, get out here. Then they're going to only come to a place with two walls. And it says he crushed his foot against the wall. Balaam gets off and is beating this donkey. They go again, and the angel of the Lord comes in front of them again, and it says there was not room. This is hilarious. There wasn't room to turn to the left or the right. So it's a really narrow place. And it says that Balaam's ass just fell down. So the donkey just went, Phoom. He gets off, gets a rod, starts beating this donkey. It says, I would that it were a sword in my hand, I'd kill you. He's just beating this donkey to death. Yeah, she's getting the full picture of it. It's funny. And then God allows the donkey to talk. And he asks him the question. It's hilarious. Am I not your faithful donkey? <laughs> Have I ever acted this way before? Read what he says. And Balaam just starts talking to him. I'm going, wow. Some things in life, you just, when you're so angry that you just start talking to the donkey when it talks to you, you're, you're a little bit out of it at that point, man. Old Balaam, he caused a problem, didn't he? And he had him there. It's interesting. Let me just show you one thing and, and I'll be done here. Look in 2 Peter 2. Show you this thing about Balaam, and this is as far as I can tell you with it because that's all that's revealed about it. 2 Peter chapter 2. Unless I've missed something, which could happen. But I think I got it. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 12, it says, But these as natural brute beasts, describing certain people, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, in other words, they're going to get what's coming to them, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Think about that for a little bit. Spots are they and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. And that's talking about feasting, talking about taking the Lord's Supper and such. Having eyes full of adultery, what they're always looking at, that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, that word beguiled, same term that's used when the devil deceived Eve, and heart have they exercised with covetous practices. Cursed children, which have forsaken the right way, and they're gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosar, who loved 
the wages of unrighteousness. He liked the he liked what he got for it. He liked the prestige and all that was given to him. But was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass, this donkey who could not speak, speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. And when they speak great swelling words of vanity, oh, they're good at explaining they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Pulled them in, sucking them in. While they promise them liberty, hey, this is freedom. They themselves are the servants of corruption, from whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought into bondage. And so they held the Pergamus the doctrine of Balaam. And then the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Not explained. The term Nicolaitans is used twice in the Bible. That's all right here. <laughs> the word means victorious over the people. The first thing, Nicolaitan, or the adherence of Nicholas. Apparently Nicholas was a person. Nicolaitan is somebody who followed him. So I learned from that there are people who follow other people to their own destruction. Name is victory over the people. I wondered as I read that and looked up that's a definition. It was in a Bible verse, so take it as that, please. But I wondered when I read that because it was very consistently given as a definition of it, no matter where I look. I wondered if it matched up to a fellow named Diotrephes in the New Testament. Paul said that he wanted to come to the church to be a blessing to him. But it says, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among you, would not suffer us. Diotrephes did not want the preacher, did not want the apostles to come around because Diotrephes was used to ruling the roost. He had the people right where he wanted them. He was the big man in that congregation. He was the one who kept things going. And the last thing he wanted was an actual God-given Preacher, God given authority coming in and actually exercising some of that. Diotrephes. I've seen him before. I know what he's like. Second Peter 2. And he said, I hate that. He said, I hate that. I hate for one person to be dominating over the others like that. What's the answer for this church? Repentance, learning the application of the Word of God. Pergamus, right where Satan's headquarters was. Where Antipas had been a faithful martyr. Where they had some good works. Where they had not denied the name of Christ, and yet they were holding to doctrines which were dangerous, even damnable, that were destroying people. And because of that, they needed the Word of God. They needed Christ as the one with the sharp sword to proceed out of His mouth to root out some things and to clean up some things and to take care of some things. May God help us. Since I believe there's a bit of Pergamus available for any and all of us, may God help us to stay, stay true to the Word of God, to allow it to cleanse us and to keep us what we ought to be. All kinds of nonsense. You do not believe the amount of nonsense that tries to, tries to afflict God's people. And in today's world of access, 
through so many different media, so much social media, and so much stuff out there, you better know your Scripture. You better better be grounded in the Word of God. You better know those who uh, serve among you who have spoken unto you to the Word of God and you better hold them in high esteem for the work's sake. You better learn the difference between somebody who wants to make merchandise of you and somebody who wants to serve God and, and, and teach and help you. Because there's a lot of wolves out there. <laughs> Down by uh, where my wife's mom lives. This has aggravated her brother no end. They put in a wolf sanctuary. People in the area did not want that wolf sanctuary there. And uh, farmers have said, and I guess most of them are kept in individual pens too, but they have a running area. They said, we get one of these storms and the limb takes those fences out. They were told at public meetings, they said, those wolves get out. It's target time. We don't want the wolves in among our stuff. They just want them. They're a noisy bunch down there. We've heard them. And uh, they got them in there, man. They're in there. People come from all over to see these wolves. And they come from all over. So where do they get them? All over the place. Rescue these wolves. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? But I'm going to tell you, tell you, there's a lot of wolves loose getting into churches. And uh, if the Word of God doesn't protect, and if the shepherd's sleeping on the job, not getting the job done, a church can become a wolf sanctuary. And so, God help us. Stay true to the Word of God. Do what, do what we ought to do and keep following, keep growing in it. That's Pergamos. Let me pray with you. Father, thank You for Your people tonight. And Lord, it is good to be in Your house on midweek. I appreciate every one of these that put forth an effort to be here, Lord. And uh, what that indicates. I pray You'll bless them because of that. And may we be a people hungry for the Word. Hungry to follow You. Lord, I have no idea where Satan's seat is in this whole world right now. But I pray you'll help us to be wise in the area where we live. To stay dependent on you. To walk humbly before you. And to rejoice in you. To take joy in what you give us to take joy in. Father, to know the strength of that. Help us to be a blessing to you and to other people because of that. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Stand together, please. We have a song invitation. Something you want to bring before the Lord? Is there a battle going on where you could just use the Lord's help today? I encourage you to seek Him. Mm